Hey church, if you got a Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, before you seniors get sitting down, just stay standing up. Everybody else stand up as well. We're going to like add some honor to God's word today. We only got three verses, so it'll be one that's easy to stand up through. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16 is going to be our primary passages for this morning. And I want us to just stand in honor of God's word. Um, you don't have to even go there necessarily right now. I want you to be able to hear God's word read over you. If you can pull it up, that's fine. But don't feel like that's what you have to do. I want you to be able to hear and receive this. And we're going to pl spend plenty of time unpacking what in the world the implications of this passage are. So if you've got a Bible, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God. Father, right now is our time of need. 1121 McDonough, Georgia, 2000 Jonesboro Road. This is our time of need. We need you now. We need grace. We need mercy. We need to know the sympathetic and sinless Savior that you are to us, Jesus. And so today I pray that by the preaching of your word, your people, me included, would be able to see you for the Savior you are, for the Father you are, for the guiding Holy Spirit that you are to us. In your name, the church said, amen. As you guys know, um, one of the things that God's been doing in my life is he's been pointing me towards a lot more dead guys um, to read and to learn from. Uh, one of those recently that I've came across is a guy, a, a Puritan theologian from the 1600s named Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book on these passages that we're getting ready to dive into. And I know you guys think like, man, Trent can just take a one verse and one sentence and he just talks about one word for like 45 minutes, like that's too much, can we move on to something else? Well, Thomas Goodwin, he took these three passages and he wrote 1,000 pages in his book called The Heart of Christ. And one of the things that stood out to me the most as I went through this book, I didn't read all of it, but as I went through this book was how he described and kind of summed up these three passages. He said, it is as if in these three passages, we have a friend who takes our hands and places them on the very heart of Christ and allows us to, with our very own hands, see the heartbeat of Jesus himself. Feel the heartbeat of Jesus himself for lost, weary, and desperate sinners. These three verses, more than any other passage in Thomas Goodwin's opinion, were a passage that helped us grasp the very heart motivation of Jesus himself. And so today I'm praying that that exact same thing happens, that as you sit here today, it would be as if through this passage, someone took your hands and allowed you to hold the very heart of Christ so that you really knew what his heart was for you. Because that's what it's really all about. 
Many of us in this room, we're, we're turned off from religion or we're turned off from faith or we're turned off even from Jesus because we have got a misunderstanding of who he actually is. Instead of actually getting Jesus' heart, we've got Jesus secondhand from a grandma or we've got Jesus secondhand from a really liberal TikTok that you follow or you've got Jesus secondhand from even your own pastor instead of actually going to the very word of God to get the heart of God. And so what I'm praying today is you're able to experience a firsthand account through these passages of what Jesus' heart is for people like me and people like you. Let's lean into it. It starts out, Hebrews 4.14, and he says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now remember, the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to who? What kind of people? Hebrews, way to go, Jewish people, all right? Now these people, this word high priest, we gotta lean into that first because we gotta understand if he's saying Jesus is the true and greater high priest, we gotta understand, well, what was the old high priest before that? Because remember, that's what he's been doing all through the book of Hebrews. This whole theme through the book is Jesus is a truer and greater version of all these Old Testament things. And because of that, hold fast to Jesus. And so now, coming off of already saying Jesus is better than any of the angels, Jesus is better than any of the prophets, Jesus is better than um, any of the old stuff that Moses did with you guys. Now he's turning a corner and he's saying, Jesus is greater than your high priest. Jesus is the true and greater high priest. And every other priest you had before this was all pointing to Jesus and the priestly order finds its full fulfillment and is not necessary to have any other man or with a white cloth or anybody else come in and be your priest because we have Jesus, he's the true and greater high priest. Now, to understand contextually what in the world that means, we gotta do a little bit of a history lesson, so bear with me to understand what priests did for the Hebrew people, all right? Now, some of this you, you may know, some of this you may be new. So what the priest did is a priest was a go-between. It was a go-between that represented God before men, women, and the, the people, and men before God. So it would take the word from God, take the ordinance of God, and it would represent and show those to the people so they could follow them and live the life that God wanted. But also the priest was the intermediate so that the sins of the people, because they weren't able to live out all those things, they could actually be covered and now they could be forgiven by God. He was the in-between. Now, once a year on a day in Hebrew that was called Yom Kippur, or what is referred to in our kind of vernacular as the day of atonement, what this priest would do is your family would come in, you'd bring in a lamb, he would slaughter this lamb, blood everywhere. He would allow that blood to be put on the mercy seat of God. So remember, there's this Ark of the Covenant. You can go back and research all this if you want to. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, it withholds the 10 commandments from God. The commandments of God, the law is there in the Ark of the Covenant. There's a lid, that lid is called the mercy seat. Blood gets poured out onto that. It's kind of the way of saying if the, the, the seat is here and the law is here, the blood is covering that because we, from the God who's looking down, we needed blood to cover the fact that we failed to live up to all of these commandments that are underneath. And this was the Hebrews people's whole entire faith and their whole entire religion and how they knew that they were okay and even justified before God because forgiveness existed in the Old Testament. Forgiveness existed in the new covenant, but it came through the priest and his sacrifice and the blood covering the mistakes. And that's why they went in. And how often did they do that? Every single year. They did that every year to make sure the family was good, things were covered. Now, Jesus comes on the scene 
and he says, I am your new high priest. The author here is trying to make that point that Jesus is our true and greater high priest. Now, what this means is Jesus has come down to earth and he has not just become the priest who sacrifices the lamb, but he is the lamb who is sacrificed and he's the priest who does the sacrificing. So what Jesus does for us now is Jesus represents God to us. We see truly who God is. Jesus made this very clear while he was walking on earth. He said, if you have seen me, it is as if you have seen who? The Father God. To see me is to see God. He represented God to us. The author of Hebrews made this very clear at the beginning. He said he is the exact imprint of God. And what he does is he represents men before God. He goes back to this father and says, because of my sacrificial service, because of me laying my life down, because of the propitiation for their sins, now they can actually be with this father because my sin is what covers them and their inability to live up to the law and to live up to the love. And so Jesus is this great high priest for us. Now, I wanna go back. Um, I wanna go this way, right here. I want you not to miss something right here. We have a great high priest. Here's what it says he's done. And this is why he's great. He's better than any other high priest. He has passed through the heavens. To put this down in like Ola Jackson language, and this is him explaining why he is a great high priest. When he says he has passed from the heavens, it's kind of the equivalent of him saying he ain't from around here, all right? Now, some of your uh, translations, they say he ascended, which is when we read ascended, we think, okay, he was down on earth and he ascended back into where? Heaven, all right? But before that could happen, where did he, what did he have to do? Before you can ascend, what do you have to do? You have to descend, all right? So I think the ESV gets a little bit more accurate here when it says he has passed through the heavens. The point that he's trying to make here is Jesus, unlike any other priest that the nation of Hebrews or even the Gentiles had had, unlike any of them, Jesus was one who was divinity become humanity. This is what made him different than any other priest. He was not just a human with fallen flesh who was doing his best to intercede for other broken fallen humans with human's flesh. He was divinity becoming humanity. This is why he says he ascended or he passed through the heavens. It's his way of saying he's a great high priest because he's not from around here. He's from a different realm, but he takes on our earthly realm. He says he passed through the heavens, this Jesus, the son of God. And then it says, let us hold fast to our confession. And this idea of hold fast is going to continue to come up. It is over and over again, the nail that the pastor to the Hebrew church pounds and pounds and pounds again. He says it in different ways, don't drift, uh, hold fast. He's, he's saying, let, don't let go of. He's just continuing to tell them, don't let go, don't give up, strive like he talked about last week, strive to enter this rest. He's continuing to say there is an activity that takes place as we hold on to what Jesus has done to us, for us. Now, I wanna hopefully try to, try to get you to the place where we can understand what that means. And, and to get there, it takes understanding what is happening in the next verse, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is the heart of Christ. Now, I wanna make sure we understand when it says, hold fast to your confession, 
what in the world that is, is getting at. And to be able to grasp that, we have to understand what Jesus did not hold fast to. Let me explain. There's this passage in the book of Philippians. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It's one of my absolute favorite passages. You can go all the way down to verse 11. Just an amazing passage of scripture. Apostle Paul is trying to help the church in Philippi understand the nature and the character of Jesus. And he says these words, not to Jews, but to Gentiles about who Jesus is. He says, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want you to find the connection between these two passages, because I think, again, it's great to be able to see this thing where this pastor to the church in Hebrews goes, hold fast to your confession. But then if you're like me, you go, how? How do I hold fast to the confession that I am a sinner and I need a savior? And let that not be something that slips through my hands. And then I go back into working for my salvation or I just give up and I go headlong into my sinful desires. Well, I think part of the answer is in looking to a Jesus. If I want to be able to hold fast to my confession, I've actually got to look and see and realize what Jesus did not hold fast to. This passage in Philippians tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God as something for him to hold fast to. Instead, and I don't know exactly what all of this means, but the best that I can get from this is that our Jesus refused to leverage the fact that he was fully divinity, but instead chose to, to take some of the Pastor Paul's words here, he instead chose to empty himself, let go of some things, so that he could fully experience the human condition. So that he could not leverage his godness so that what he experienced in his humanity disqualified him from being a sympathetic savior who knows what it's like to walk where you walk, do what you do and understand the human condition. That's why it says he emptied himself. He took the very nature of a servant, which is just mind boggling and scandalous to think that the God who put all of the millions of galaxies into existence comes down here to this dusty, sin-scarred planet and serves us, becomes a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And see, this is, this is a God who lets go of aspects or turns down aspects. He doesn't, he didn't fully, there was never a point in Jesus' life where he said, I'm not God anymore. But what this passage tells us is that there was an intentional choice not to leverage those things, to be able to fully experience humility here on earth and to relate to humans as well. So what in the world does this mean when, when he goes, okay, we have this high priest in Jesus who did these things so that we can know that he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he let go of the things that would keep him from feeling those experiences and feeling those weaknesses. What does it mean to have a God who can sympathize with us? To sympathize, to know what it's like to be you, to walk where you've walked and to talk where you've talked and to experience the things that you feel, to know what hurt is happening right now for you. See, I think many times when we think about how Jesus feels about us, 
if I was to give you a multiple choice question and he sympathizes with us, right now, many of you would not select that. You would say, how does Jesus feel about you? Angry, ashamed, desperate, sympathetic. The choice you're probably not picking is he just, he's super sympathetic with me. Like he just understands, like he just gets it. He's very sympathetic with me. I think the reason that happens is because we know the back half of that passage in Philippians. See that passage in Philippians, it says that he, though he was God, he didn't count that equality with God to be grasped. Instead, he let go of some of that. He, he turned some of that down, so to speak, and then he became a servant. And then he went even further than that and became a, a, a crucified on a cross for us. And then we know where that verse goes. It turns a great corner. And it says, because he humbled himself to the lowest of low, God has now exalted him to the highest of highs. And you know how to finish the, the rest of the verse. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See that verse in Philippians ends with this magisterial view of Jesus as this ruling and reigning king that we will bow down before and kiss his feet and acknowledge him. Every, no matter if you believed him down here or not, everybody's gonna go, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And because we get that image of him, sometimes that's where we see him right now. We, we know he went to the cross, we know he rose from the grave, but what he's doing right now is he's just sitting up on his big kingly throne, he's judging all of us down here and he sees all the things I mess up and he's just down there con kind of condemning me and just going, you know, I wish you'd get your stuff together, I wish you quit struggling with that same thing that you've been messing around with since middle school. Can we please get our act together? But please, don't see Jesus even though he is on his throne magisterial kingdom throne, disconnect him geographically from the reality that he knows what it's like to be right here, right now. He has sympathy and he knows what is going on here. The best proof that I could ever give to say that Jesus, even though he is fully exalted, that he is ruling and reigning as king and judge, is that in that very moment, as he sits on this throne at the right hand of the Father, do you know what is still in the dead center of his hands? Scars. Now, why else would Jesus choose to keep the scars on his hands? He's been fully resurrected, he's been fully redeemed and restored, but we have proof positive that Jesus post-resurrection in his new fully redeemed and restored death-conquering body, what does it still have remnants of? Scars, scars that tell the story to humanity like us that just because he is sitting and ruling in heaven as a king, he leaves the scars on his hands to bear witness to people like you and me that I am a God who gets great pleasure and great glory out of being hands on with broken sinners. And my hands bear the living proof that there is no link that I will not go to to reach into your most broken, your most desperate, your most terrifying situation where you think I'm up here just going, mm, I ain't touching that. That's nasty. How dare you do that? That's weird. Like, no, this is the God who goes, he sees us in those things and goes, oh, these hands were made to heal this. These hands bear the proof that I've paid for this, that by these wounds, I can bring the healing. Yet so many times we don't see that sympathetic Jesus. We see the ruling reigning angry at us, Jesus. 
We hear pastors on TV tell us, just live like Jesus, live like Jesus. And we go, I'm really trying to live like Jesus, but I feel like it's time to tell me when I go golf this weekend, like, putt like Tiger Woods, play golf like Tiger Woods. I'm like, I'm not Tiger Woods. It's really hard. It'd be great if like he could telemorph into my body and, and you know, golf with me or through me. Well, that's actually Christianity. It's not you. It's Jesus in you. And he brings this healing. He brings this stuff to us. Now, some of you here and like, maybe you've been following Jesus for a little while. And like, I don't know, you're just those people, you like it when I preach really angry and I beat up on you and you're, you're just those weird masochistic people and you're like, you're like, oh man, you really just stomping on my toes. right? Like, and you get weird pleasure out of that and bless your heart. Like, that's great. Um, and you kind of like a Jesus who's also angry. Now, I wouldn't be preaching the whole gospel to you if I just said Jesus is just super sympathetic. He's just super sympathetic and he's very, because he truly is sympathetic. And he can really sympathize with your stuff because he's walked through it and he's experienced it. But I want you to also know, while he is sympathetic towards you, he is very angry at the sin. He's very sympathetic towards you. But his heart is to make absolute war and bring the murder of the sin that is ruining you. He is angry. Many of us in life, though, when we commit the sins, when we do the things wrong, when we find ourselves in a time of trial and struggle and doubt and weakness, we misplace the anger, though. Jesus is angry at the sin, albeit, like, for sure. Don't, don't downplay the fact that he hates the sin. He hates the sin because it's ruining his child. It's ruining his father's kids. And so he wants to desperately see that absolutely, utterly destroyed in your life. But what happens so many times for us is we think that what he wants to do to the sin is what he wants to do to us. We commit the sin and we misplace what he wants to do to the sin to us. He wants to destroy the sin and we say, he wants to destroy me. We say, he wants to kill the sin. And he says, and we say, he wants to kill me. And this is why you've, ha you've felt this. You go through these moments and periods of life where maybe it's a season where you feel like you're falling into temptation more. And you begin to buy this lie that Satan in partnership with your fallen flesh says that God is angry at you and God cannot use someone like you, cannot work with someone like you. And then you begin to believe that self-imposed lie about your life and then you become living prophecy for yourself. And because you believe that God can't use someone like you, God is not using someone like you. Because you believe that he is done with you and he's finished with you, that actually starts to become your reality. If you believe that not that Jesus wants to ruin the sin, but Jesus wants to ruin me, that will become your identity and marriages will be ruined. Fathers will be ruined, mothers will be ruined, families will be ruined. Because that's what sin wants to bring about, the utter ruin of everything that God would want to bring glory through in your life and in my life. And so we have to understand, Jesus has sympathy with us as a committer of sin, but he wants to issue all-out war in partnership with you as you guys kill your flesh together to see what was ruining you actually ruined. Praise God.
(laughs) So simply put, to sum up this rant, what this means for us is that he understands you and me. He actually does get you. He actually does understand you. He actually has felt what you felt and walked where you've walked. And we, we know this about understanding and sympathy. Hey, anybody in the room uh, married? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody in your marriage ever struggle with sympathy? Yeah, me, me too. What I've realized, took me a little while, but what I've realized is that my lack of sympathy is directly connected to my lack of understanding. And because I don't understand what's really going on or the actual issue, it's hard for me to tap into sympathy because I don't understand. So wives, help us out, help us to understand. Like, don't just, don't just not talk to us for three weeks because we're not sympathetic. Um, help us understand. Husbands in the room, seek to understand before you seek to be understood. And, and in light, like things will get a lot better, a lot faster. But you've realized this in your life. You have a hard time being sympathetic with people that you don't really understand why they did what they did. Well, Jesus says, I came down here and I experienced every aspect of what you're going through. So I am incredibly, incredibly sympathetic because I know what it's like to walk where you walk, to go through what you're going through. I have been where you're at. Now, some of us in the room, you hear that and you go, okay, if he really gets me, if he understands me, you have maybe had a thought like this. If he understands me, well, that's hard to grasp because the part of me, when you think about you, the part of you that you hate the most is not the good parts. The part about you that you want to be over and done with and to not have exist anymore are the sinful things you do. The part of you that you hate the most is the quick temper. The part of you that you hate the most is the overindulgent. The part of you that you hate the most is the lustful aspects of your life. The proneness to create your own idols and to worship them. That's the part of you you hate the most. And what are all of those things? sins. The parts of you, if he, if he really understands me, the parts of me that I want him to understand and fix the most are the sinful parts. How can someone who's never sinned say they understand me? How can someone who's, who's never experienced this, this, this lust that I fall into and the shame that comes after it, how can they say they understand me? How can someone who's never dealt with what I deal with at work and then the propensity to lie so that I can still continue to bring food home on the table, how can someone who's never actually sinned say they understand what sin is doing to me? I would do my best to try to explain this and it would still fall short of the way another great theologian, C.S. Lewis, explained it. Here's how he said this, and it makes so much sense. If you're at this place where you're going like, how can a Jesus who never sinned understand someone and have sympathy on someone like me who sins? Here's why I think the fact that he is sinless makes him all the more sympathetic to us in the midst of our sin and temptation. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good, amen. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is that whole idea, like you're goody two-shoes. You don't know what it's like to struggle with this. You know, you live with a silver spoon in your mouth your whole entire life. You have no idea. He says, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. 
A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And here's where it all becomes about Jesus. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows, the full, knows to the full what temptation actually means. He can sympathize to the fullness because what you've tasted of temptation is still the watered down version. Jesus has experienced temptation in its prescription strength format without sin. So he understands me. He knows what it's like to be us. Pastor goes on from here in verse 16. He says, because of this, because we have this high priest who gets where we're at, understands who we are, let us then with confidence, some of your NIV translate, with boldness, draw near to this throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Now, let's just camp out on this word confidence or boldness as some of you use uh, verses or passages translate this. We can hear that and we go, with confidence and like we equate confidence and boldness with this like cocky kind of chest poked out like let me go up here with Jesus let me tell you what and we want confidence to be connected to the good things we do like we help an old lady cross the road or we you know give a little bit extra in the money this week that's when we're like Jesus did you check that out did you see what did you see how much I gave this week did you see how I bit my tongue at that parent-teacher meeting at the end of the year where they told me those things about my kid did you see those things Jesus we want to approach the throne with confidence not in our weakness, but we, approach, we, wanna, we think, okay, the times when I will approach the throne of, with confidence and boldness is when I have something good to show for it. But what the author of Hebrews and really the entire New Testament continues to confirm to us is that it is actually from the eyes of Christ, it makes more sense for us to be approaching him when we are in our weakness, falling to temptation, struggling with doubt. Those are actually the moments that we should be most boldly and confidently approaching this throne of grace because those are the moments when we actually need it the most. So he says, approach it. And hear me, the most preposterous, prideful thing you could do is to not approach if you believe that Jesus really is who he is, a sympathetic and sinless savior. If he is that, then oh my goodness, boldly approach. Come in with confidence because hear me, what you're approaching is a throne of grace. I love that. And again, this is why I think the, the Thomas Merton, the guy I showed you at the beginning, I think he got this right. Like this is the heart of Christ. And some of you, the, the heart of Christ that you've been holding on to is not one who had a throne of grace for you, but one who had a throne of judgment, who had a throne of condemnation. Bible tells us very clearly in the book of Romans. And this is, again, this is if you're in Christ. It says, if you are in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, many of us, we have a hard time with this idea of a throne of grace because in our sin, we misdiagnose what really is Holy Spirit given guilt and conviction. Those of us who are in Christ, we label that guilt and conviction, condemnation and shame. And because we misdiagnose the things that have, we, we sin, we make that mistake. And our self-imposed pride 
causes us to not go to the throne of grace. We actually run usually the opposite way. Either we sit, track with me, and you know where you're at in this. We usually go one or two ways when we find ourselves in a season where we're sinning or we find ourselves post a big sin, whatever it is. We either just sit and we're numb in depression or we binge. Well, I did it once, I should do it some more. And we run headlong in the opposite direction away from the throne of grace. When all the while, Jesus is saying, this is a throne of grace. This is a place where you can receive something that you cannot receive any other place. Now, I wanna wanna bring some good news. And it's good news that I had brought to me by one of the heroes in the faith, Billy Graham. This was an eye-opening truth that he uh, helped me be able to see and I want you to be able to see it as well. He said this, he said, the closer you get to Christ, the more sinful you are going to feel. And I, somehow I went a lot of years in Christianity without anybody really explaining that to me. I'll say it again. The closer you get to Christ, the more sinful you're going to feel. And what, the point he was trying to make in that was when you see an accurate reflection of the beauty and magnitude and the perfection that is Jesus, there is something that will cause you to fall down in utter reverence for the fact that he is so holy and you are so not. This is fully on display in the story where where Peter has already had some interactions at the very beginning of the gospels. He's had some interactions with Jesus. They've been around each other a couple of times. And then there's this moment where Peter has this miraculous catch of fish. And in that moment, what do you see Peter doing after he knows that he hasn't just had an encounter with a rabbi or a good faith teacher or this maybe Messiah guy. He's had a real encounter where he's seen the true reflection of God's son himself. What does he do in his boat? He falls down on his knees in humble reverence and says, I, what does he say? I'm an unholy man. I have no business in your presence. He fully acknowledges in that moment when he's fully seen God, when he is as close as he could possibly get to him, he goes, I am so incredibly sinful. He feels his sin there on that boat more than he had ever felt it ever since. And where was he? As close to Christ as he could possibly be. So don't take the reality that you really feel your sin right now as proof positive that Jesus is so far away from you. It may be proof positive that Jesus is nearer to you than he ever has been before. Because you might just be right at the throne of grace. Well, what does it say we get when we get to the throne of grace? When we get to the throne of grace, we receive mercy and we find grace to help in this time of need. Now you may be going, well, what's the What's the difference between receiving mercy and finding grace? Well, in order to understand that, you gotta know the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is when God doesn't give you usually something negative, a punishment that you actually do deserve. It's when God withholds the punishment that you should have gotten because of your sins and waywardness. Grace is kind of the opposite. Grace is when God does give you something, usually positive, that you absolutely did not deserve. So in this passage, he says, at this throne of grace, we receive mercy and find grace. Now, track with me here, because we're going to get deep, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go a thousand pages deep, but I'm going to try to get with you here. Receive mercy, find grace. This word find and this word receive are actually two different Greek words, which show that we should lean into what's actually happening there. And there's a reason behind every word, even even the commas, like there's a reason between everything that's in the Bible. And so when it says receive mercy, this was kind of confusing to me. 
Because my definition of mercy was that's God withholding something. So <laughs> let's just think logically here. How do I receive something that's being withheld? All right, like, like you know, Colin, if I said, hey, come get this Bible, I'm not gonna give you. We're like, we're like what do you want me to do? Like, I don't know how to, how to come get the Bible you're not gonna give me. What I believe he's after here is receiving the reality that you're not receiving the punishment. So it's, let's just be very practical. It's you this week when you sin. What does it mean to approach the throne of grace and receive mercy? This week, when you sin, pause and go, and go, what mercy? I have not just been annihilated because that's what my sin deserves against a holy, righteous, perfect God. It's you when you blow up in the car in McDonough traffic and go and I'm still here. <laughs> and you're not going anywhere fast. <laughs> that it's, it's perpetually coming to this place where you realize over and over again that I, what I'm getting is this mind blowing truth that I'm not getting what I actually deserve. And so over and over and over again, I wanna get and grasp and receive and understand that I, after every single one of the sins that I commit, I'm actually not getting what I deserve. And then when he goes to find grace, he says, this is a place where you're going to find. Now I'm actually going to discover something. I'm going to you know, lift up, oh, there it is. I'm going to receive into my life this grace that I have now found. Now, some of you are like, well, I got baptized three weeks ago. I thought that was when I found grace. I thought that was when I got saved. Some of you was like at a Billy Graham stadium thing. You're like, that's when I found grace. Why do I still need to find grace if I've already found it? Do I have it? Yes. We need to understand that when it comes to grace, there's saving grace. And that's what happened in that moment where you gave your heart to Christ. You were in Christ. You were saved. Your soul was set. Its eternal destination was set in heaven. You have found grace then, saving grace. But what we need 24-7, every single day of the week, is not just saving grace, but sustaining grace. The power to not just go, oh, I didn't die because I was sin. I sinned right there. But the power to go, now I will resist better because God gave me mercy and given me one more moment to fight, to kill, to ruin what's trying to ruin me. It's the sustaining grace that's talked about in the book of Titus. Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. One of my absolute uh, favorite passages. This is where it talks about this sustaining grace. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Not just salvation from the effects eternally of sin, but salvation even from how sin would rule and reign in you right now. Verse 12, he's talking about this grace. This grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. A grace, this is this grace. So I approach this throne of grace to come and meet with Jesus. And as I approach this throne of grace, Jesus goes, thank you for being here. Thank you for coming and understanding that I have so much sympathy on you, but I'm gonna teach you how to say no. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about last week. Like, <clears throat> do we read passages like that and go, this word of God is living and active. And as I read this verse, that I'm gonna come to this throne of grace and I'm gonna leave with the power to learn how to say no. Do we actually believe that that's gonna manifest in our life or do we just read that and go, well, I hope that happens. No, like this is where this word is living and active and don't come and read it and not 
beg Jesus to make what you just read active in your life. So we come and we find this grace that gives us the power to say no. He goes on in that passage, power to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. What he's saying there is, mercy is for when you've messed up and you need forgiveness. And grace is for when you're tempted and you need the power to resist. And both mercy and grace are available at this throne of grace. Now, to wrap this up, make it very practical. Why don't we experience this and feel this on an everyday basis? Like, why does it take a, a, a jarring moment like this morning to go like, wake up? I think it's because we're like this Hebrew people a lot of ways. Remember when God started showing them his sustaining grace by giving them manna and quail and all this stuff in the desert? What was their temptation to do? To go out there with backpacks and wheelbarrows and just like, let's get all the manna we can get. And God told them very clearly, what is yesterday's manna gonna taste like today? It's gonna be ruined. You're not gonna be able to eat that. Now, I've had this thought in my heart. Maybe you've had this too. If this whole thing is about me receiving strength from God in the midst of my weakness, I don't know, man, I've had these moments in my faith. I'm like, God, why can't you just make me strong? Like, <laughs> why do I have to be weak? Why do I have to? And again, some of us, we have areas in our life, we're super strong. Nothing, that doesn't, we're not even tempted to mess with that thing over there. But other areas, we're just like so weak. Like somebody throws a croissant out on a lunch table, you're like, got that croissant, man. Like, that's my croissant. I don't know where they went. I don't know. We're just tempted and we're weak. And if you're, not like, if you're like me, like we can get to these places where we go, God, why, why can't I be like a creative player on a video game? And like from the moment I'm created new in you, you just turn all my stats all the way up and I can, I'm super great at resisting. I'm super great at evangelizing. I'm super great at being patient. I'm super great at all these spiritual disciplines. Well, I believe what Jesus is after is the same thing that he was after when he was here living a life of utter dependence on the Father. And if you immediately, the moment of salvation, are fully strong, what do you not need anymore? The strength of the Father. And that's why I believe it's one of the only happy things in the book of Lamentations, because it's all about lamenting, but it says this, about this love of the Father. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never been a moment in this time, no matter what you've done wrong, no matter how broken you felt like you've made your life, where his love has ever just gone. It even, there's never even been a time where he thought about slowing it down. He's never even break checked your love, the love that he has for you. It's, just, it's, it's, it's full steam ahead, right towards you. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It says his mercies, again, the fact that you're not getting what you deserve. His mercies never come to an end. And I love this. This is the key reminder for us here today as we, we get ready to wrap up. They're new every morning. What this means is, how do I experience this great high priest today, tomorrow, and every day? It means that I stop relying on yesterday's mercies to get me through today. The reason he lets us feel weakness, the reason he lets us go through suffering is so that at the end of that suffering, we continue to realize I'm empty, I'm broken, I can't do this on my own, so that we continue to go back to the one who has new mercies ready for us every morning. And my prayer is that you feel those new mercies, that new grace as you approach his throne this morning, today. 
here. And as we get ready to receive communion, my prayer is that you know that it is by his wounds, by his blood shed on the cross, by his body broken, that we can receive this throne of grace and it not be a throne of judgment. I will tell you straight up, I have to do this, this is the gospel. If you are not put your faith in Christ, it is not a throne of grace for you. Right now it is a throne of, of judgment. And right now at this moment, he sits on that throne and it is a throne where you are not in good standing. It is a, it is a throne of, of judgment where he's looking at you and going, hey, I, I hate the sin that is doing you in. I hate the sin that's ruining your life. And, and unless you come to me, unless you receive this grace, I'm going to have, I am forced, but out of the obligation that I have to be a justful, righteous God, I'm gonna to have to throw my gavel down and say, you are condemned and you are guilty. Or you can let me be held accountable for the sins that you've committed. You can, be let, you can let me be received as the sin payment for your sins. And you can come to me and enter into this throne of grace and receive mercy and receive kindness. And from this moment forward, maybe your first time experiencing it, but from this moment forward, you can every morning come and receive the new mercy and the new grace as you approach the throne of a sympathetic and sinless savior. If you want to receive him for the very first time today, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be back there in the back. If you want to give your life to Christ and be baptized into that, I'll be back there. I'd love to do that with you. But as you receive communion this morning, my prayer is that, that maybe you would uh, allow this time of taking communion to be somewhat of an object lesson. We started this morning by talking about how this passage of 14, 15, 16, chapter four of Hebrews is like being able to take your hands and put them on the very heart of Christ. And I hope today that it's kind of felt like that, that you've seen his heart for you, a compassionate, loving, kind savior who doesn't just say, get out of the pit, but walks down in there with you and carries you out. And as you take communion, maybe before you open up the cell of fame, you would actually look at your own hands unless there's been some sort of catastrophic accident in your life, you would look at those hands and realize that there are not scars issued by nine inch nails piercing through your hand bones. But there on those hands, there deserve to be those kind of scars. There deserve to be that kind of wounding. But our sacrificial, our sympathetic, our sinless savior, he was wounded so you could be healed. And then as you taste and see, and take of the body, drink of the blood, my prayer is maybe that you would just take one or both of your hands and that you would realize and understand that I don't have to wait to this moment to really be able to see and experience and get hands on with Jesus because he actually tells me through his word that he lives heart. His heart is inside of mine. And so if I want to draw near to the heart of Christ and he is in me and I am in him, then, then I will place my hands here and I will feel even through my very own hands that it is Jesus who is near to my heart. It is Jesus who is holding me together. It is Jesus with his hands touching even the most broken, hard-hearted parts of my life and saying, son, daughter, healing is here. Let's pray. Father, move in your church today pray the gospel changes our, our lives. Holy Spirit, we, I pray we would not allow anything to get in the way of what you're doing in our lives. Help us to not talk ourselves out of what you're trying to lead us into. 
allow fleshes to be crucified, allow the spirit to resurrect where it needs to. Have your way with us, Father. We surrender to you. Thank you for your body broken. We thank you for your blood shed. We meet with you now 